This episode is brought to you by the top-rated VPN, Surfshark. And I'm so happy to talk about Surfshark because it answers all of my online headaches. Whether I'm traveling, streaming, I want online privacy, more security, or I simply just want to watch videos that are locked outside the country, whatever country you're in, Surfshark is the answer to all of this. I could be safe on public Wi-Fis. I'll not get locked on my bank account when I travel abroad. And it provides me IP leak protection. I mean, it's absolutely amazing and at a very good price as well. And for MMA fans, it's perfect for us because you can also watch MMA content that's also locked out of the country. On Twitter, you see this all the time. On YouTube, you see this sometimes. And that could be a bit of a headache. Surfshark is perfect for MMA fans. And the thing about Surfshark is it's one of the most affordable and has features where other VPNs lack. You have an unlimited amount of devices that you can use this on under one subscription, which you do not find with any other VPN, 24-7 support, independent audit, two-factor authentication, it has a whitelister, and it allows torrenting. There's no other VPN that matches Surfshark. And I personally love to use it with Netflix. I mean, the unlimited amount of content that you can unlock with Surfshark is insane. And for those who just try it out and turns out not to be what you want, there's always a 30-day money-back guarantee. But remember, use the promo code the weasel so you get 83% off and three extra months for free again this promo code t-h-e-w-e-a-s-l-e the link will be in the description box below stay protected by downloading surfshark what's up everybody welcome back to the mma meeting let's talk with the weasel podcast where we talk all things mma this is going to be available on all platforms youtube spotify itunes all of that and if you guys want more there's additional podcast episodes i upload every week sometimes twice a week on patreon or if you join as a member of the channel I dropped one a couple days ago. There should be another one up in a couple days from here. But what's been going on in MMA? Not too much, man. It's been pretty quiet. Just Joshua Fabia stuff that we already talked about. Still waiting on Diego Sanchez to talk about that whole thing and clear up the air because Joshua Fabia quickly jumped on his narrative. Like, once the news came out, he did not waste time of getting into the media and talking about it in interviews and stuff like that. He really likes to be in the spotlight. We had the Max Holloway Yair Rodriguez announcement, which is excellent. I love that fight. It seems like a lot of people don't think that Yair has much of a chance here. And I can see where people are coming from. I mean, he got drowned out before from pressure by uh, Frankie Edgar, even though most of it was wrestling. He started to get a little bit tired against Jeremy Stevens. But people have to remember that he dropped Stevens with a body kick and tried to finish him off. He kind of gassed himself out doing that. I don't think he'll do that against Max Holloway. He knows how tough Holloway is. But you could say he should know how tough Jeremy Stevens was. So he shouldn't have done that as well. But Stevens also coming off a couple TKO losses. I do agree with people's opinion that Yair is probably going to lose this fight. I mean, he's going to get pushed to the limit after that third round. But I do think the first and second round should be pretty competitive. Especially because Yair Rodriguez is the first kicker that Max Holloway's going up against. Josie Aldo could kick, but for the majority of his UFC run, he was a boxer for the most part. With really good takedown defense and good Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Anti-wrestling, boxing. That was pretty much what Josie Aldo showed in the UFC. Yair Rodriguez is going to be kicking the legs, which is one of Max Holloway's biggest weaknesses. He's going to be throwing kicks at the head, which is something that Max Holloway doesn't normally have to deal with. And it's not just regular kicks, it's the unorthodox style of kicks. And so everybody has to emphasize in this fight. Even though Yair is probably going to lose, I think he will surprise some people in the first two rounds of that fight. We had Alexander Volkanovsky say that he expects his fight with Brian Ortega to be placed in September, somewhere in there. And that's really good news because I thought it'd probably be a little bit later due to the Ultimate Fighter and then they have to go through training camp and all that stuff. So September is actually earlier than I thought it would come out. And that's amazing, man. It kind of lines up with the Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez fight, right? So the winner of that fight should fight the winner of Volkanovski versus Brian Ortega. Man, there's some interesting fights that can happen out of that. 
First of all, Ortega versus Volkanovski is not a given fight. That's a hard fight for both guys, especially with Ortega 2.0 in there. He attempts more takedowns. He's much more defensively responsible, which was the most important change for him. He throws kicks more. He throws elbows more. He's a lot more patient too. And Volkanovski is going to have to minus P's and Q's in that one because Brian Ortega hits a little different, right? This is not Max Holloway. If Ortega catches Volkanovski coming in with the same uppercut that Holloway caught him with, that fight would probably be over. And the kick Volkanovski got dropped with in the first round, he did not see it coming at all, right? It was very unpredictable. Holloway like shuffled right and left, then found his angle with the high kick. If that kind of unpredictability is going to get through Volkanovski's defense, I wonder what Ortega can do. Because we've seen him catch Korean Zombie with that spinning back elbow moving backwards. Ortega's getting a bit creative out there. I do think Volkanovski has the advantage in the fight. I think he overall is a better striker. Ortega normally doesn't bite the feints as much as some other fighters do. So that's a promising thing going for Ortega. And Volkanovski's a hard guy to take to the ground, right? He's going to be throwing leg kicks. He's going to be going to the body, going to the head. He's very good at point fighting, evident from his fights with Max Holloway. But we have seen him go to war in the past as well against Chad Mendes. We know he has that in him. If he gets himself in a firefight and starts brawling with Ortega, he's probably going to get knocked out in this fight. I don't think his chin is as good as Ortega's. Ortega's taking huge bombs in his career and never really getting hurt that bad. Look at the punishment that Max Holloway put on Ortega. And then look at Max Holloway only catching Alexander Volkanovsky with a few strikes and dropping him multiple times. Those strikes that Holloway caught Volkanovski with would never drop Brian Ortega. So that's actually a very competitive fight. And it could be more entertaining than the Volkanovski and Holloway fights, to be honest here. But then what happens with the winners of the featherweights? So what happens with Max Holloway if he goes and defeats Yara Rodriguez and he fights Volkanovski for the third time? It's hard to say how that third fight would go. But what we do know is that Max Holloway got closer in the second fight than he did the first time. He found more openings and he actually hurt Volkanovski. On the other hand... You have Volkanovski who comes from a very good striking camp and they're going to pick up some stuff on Max Holloway as well. So there's a possibility that Volkanovski is going to be even harder to hit in the third fight and find more things out there as well. So I looked at the fight recently again and to be honest here, I think Volkanovski has actually shown more of his hand than Max Holloway has. I don't see Volkanovski changing as much as Holloway can for the third fight, ultimately making me think that Holloway probably has a better chance of winning in that third fight. Because what he showed against Kelvin Cater was phenomenal, man. It's hard to do that against Volkanovski, obviously, because Volkanovski punches with him. He counters a lot better. He's harder to hit in general. He throws light kicks. He disrupts the movements. Whenever he threw something at Holloway, Holloway had to back away when Kelvin Cater wasn't necessarily punching back that much. He allowed Max Holloway to take over the center of the cage, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. Allowing a guy like that to control the fight, man, the avalanche falls on you pretty quickly. But yeah, man, I'm starting to think in the third fight that Holloway has the better chance of winning there. Probably like 53%, like 53-47-ish. Really, really close. But then what happens if Max fights Brian Ortega? I think it's a more competitive fight, man, especially with the patience and the creativity and being much more defensive. But I still don't see him being defensive enough to stop Holloway's attacks. I just don't see it, man. The, there was a clear striking gap in their first fight, and even Ortega's fight with Korean Zombie. I just did not see him close the gap enough on Holloway. But what happens? Let's just say, man, Yair Rodriguez knocks out Max Holloway. He head kicks him into oblivion, spinning heel kicks him in the face, and just drops him, right? How does Yair versus Volkanovski and Yair versus Ortega go? I honestly think with Volkanovski, it's an extremely dangerous fight for both guys because Yair can kick his head off at any given moment, right? If Volkanovski thought that Max Holloway was a bit tricky for the first two rounds, he's going to be completely lost in front of Yair Rodriguez. But then again, Volkanovski could pressure Yair, try to get him to the ground, and dominate him through pressure, similar to what Frankie Edgar did. So there's a given for both guys here. 
on the feet at a distance, Volkanovski has almost nothing for Yair Rodriguez. He's going to be so much danger at that range. But on the back foot, Yair is probably going to get drowned in the fight. With Brian Ortega, it depends if Ortega can get Yair to the ground. At a distance, I think Yair is just overall a better striker. I think he does most things better than Brian Ortega, to be honest here. Ortega has been wrestling a lot more, and Yair's takedown defense is not the greatest. If he gets down Yair, that fight's over, man. That fight's done. But I'm actually liking Yair's chances against Ortega. So right now, man, the featherweight division is on notice. That division is booming at the moment, and I feel bad for Zabit. He missed out on his chance potentially here. If he turned down fights and he's stepping away for a bit, he was probably the guy that was supposed to fight Max Holloway. If Yair was going to get the Holloway fight, you would have to think that Zabit was the priority as Holloway's opponent, not Yair. But in hindsight, I'm actually liking it that Zabit did not take the fight because, man, he could not fight five rounds with Max Holloway. First two rounds, I see Zabit winning, but the last three rounds might be one of the biggest beatings in UFC history. And that's pretty much all that's been going on in the MMA news. But for those who don't know, I actually put out my list on Twitter of the greatest fighters of all time in every single division. And then pound for pound. And you know how all these lists go. Whenever someone puts out their opinion of who the greatest of all time is, there's always a huge amount of disagreement. But shockingly enough, a lot of people mostly agree with my list here. Of course, I had disagreements, but they were all kind of the same disagreements. Now, firstly, if you guys actually want me to go over the entire list, I can make an entire video just going through my greatest of all time lists, every single division as to why certain fighters are over certain fighters. If you guys have any questions as to why I put a certain fighter in a certain position, I'd be more than happy to make a video about that. But I'm going to cover the three main disagreements that people have had. Number one, it's about Daniel Cormier. A lot of people seem to think that I put him way too low in the heavyweight division, light heavyweight division, and pound for pound. The second thing was about eras. Why certain older fighters were put over some of the newer fighters when the newer fighters are better fighters. And the number three disagreement, Conor McGregor. You probably know how that criticism went. I'm going to start with the one with Conor, go to the era one, and then go to the Daniel Cormier criticism because that one's a little bit more lengthy. Easy, Conor McGregor, 1-2 and two in the lightweight division of the UFC. He's also 1-2 and two in notable fights of the lightweight division when we're including organizations outside the UFC. He lost to Poirier, lost to Habib, only win is against Eddie Alvarez. You might count Ivan Butchinger, but Ivan Butchinger is a bit untested against the best fighters in the world. Simple, he's not in the top 10 of the lightweight division. He was a better featherweight than he was a lightweight, going by his resume and his achievements. The second thing, why do you separate fighters by eras? Why don't you just directly compare them? Well, it's not really fair. The newer fighters are bigger, stronger, more skilled, and they had the privilege to learn from the older guys. If we're not going to separate fighters by eras, and we're just going to look at the skill level, you know what the greatest fighters of all time lists are? Just look at the UFC rankings right now. Those are the greatest fighters. Because they would beat everybody else in history. Chuck Liddell's not going to be a top 10, probably not even top 15 light heavyweight today. Matt Hughes is not breaking the top 10. Josie Eldo is probably not going to break the top 5. There's only a few anomalies in the sport like Fedor Emelianenko or GSP who can still be ranked in the top 10 of their divisions. The thing about the heavyweight division is it had a slower progression rate than the other divisions, right? The more modern the fighter is, the better they are. That's just generally how it is. And then talk about the Daniel Cormier placements. Now, there are people who gave some credible arguments for Daniel Cormier to be higher in the heavyweight list, higher in the light heavyweight list. But what I will say before looking at it is there's a lot of recency bias for Daniel Cormier. It turns out he actually did not do what a lot of people think he's done in his career in terms of amount of quality wins, how long he's been doing it. You'd probably be shocked how many notable wins he has in his career. So let's look at it. My heavyweight list goes Stipe Miocic, number one, number two is Fedor, number three, Fabrizio Verdum, number four, Antonio Nogueira, 
Number 5, Alistair Overeem. Number 6, Francis Ngannou. Number 7, Cain Velasquez. Number 8, Junior Santos. Number 9, Daniel Cormier. And number 10, Mirko Krokop. Why is Cormier number 9? Why is he below JDS? Why is he below Francis Ngannou? That's the one I got a lot. Why is he below Ngannou and JDS for the most part? Well, here's the thing, man. My GOAT list lies on resume and competition beaten. Your achievements, your title reign, the guys you beat, all that stuff. It doesn't really take into account skills because then we got to eliminate the older fighters. Let's compare DC to Francis Ngannou. Who did Daniel Cormier beat and what did he do in the heavyweight division? And disclaimer, we are not talking about light heavyweight. When we're talking about heavyweight DC, we're only talking about heavyweight. We do not include what he did in another weight class. This goes vice versa when we're talking about light heavyweight DC. When you want to combine his two careers in different divisions, then you're talking about pound for pound. So he won the Strike Force tournament. He was a heavyweight champion in the UFC and defended his belt once before losing it to Stipe and then got beat by Stipe again. He has two losses in the heavyweight division, right? But more importantly, who did he beat? This is what everything comes down to. Who did you beat? You could be the longest reigning champion of all time, but if you beat nobody, it doesn't count for much. It just counts for your longevity and the fact that you made mistakes and didn't get paid for it. So number one, he beat a prime Bigfoot Silva. Very good win. He beat Josh Barnett. Good win. He beat Frank Mir a little bit older in his career, but he was still very capable at that time. Then we move all the way up. Stipe win, Derek Lewis win. That's it. He has Five notable wins in the heavyweight division. This is where a lot of people seem to be scratching their heads and think, wait, didn't he beat more guys than that? Yes, he did beat Roy Nelson. But Roy Nelson was never really that notable of a name. He just had a lot of hype to him, to be honest. But you do not compare Roy Nelson to guys like Frank Mir, Bigfoot, and Josh Barnett and Stipe. He's not on that level. So yeah, five notable wins. How does he stack up to Francis Ngannou? Well, Francis Ngannou also won the belt. He has three losses. One of them is a bit iffy with Derek Lewis. A lot of people don't count that. Not even Derek Lewis himself counts it. But most importantly, who did Francis Ngannou beat? Curtis Blades twice, Alistair Overeem, Cain Velasquez, Junior Santos, Jarzino Rosestrike, and Stipe Miocic. Seven notable wins. Some people even count Andrei Arlovsky, which I'm not really going to do. He was already on the downslope of his career after his resurgence. So I'm counting seven wins here. Cain Velasquez looks still capable. He fought the fight like he always does. He tried to do what he did. He just got punched in the face and knocked out. JDS was on the downslope of his career, but he was still a capable fighter. Francis Agano beat Junior Santos after JDS literally just TKO Derek Lewis, and he was coming off a three-win streak. Very capable Junior Santos. Jarzino Rostrike, obviously. Younger guy, top contender. Stipe Miocic. He beat the greatest heavyweight of all time in his prime and made it look very easy. He beat top contender Curtis Blades twice. He beat Alistair Overeem, who was on one of the best win streaks of his entire career. So what I will say is, Francis Ngannou's win over Stipe is greater than any win Daniel Cormier's ever had in the heavyweight division. Even Daniel Cormier's win over Stipe, that Stipe was not the same Stipe that fought Francis. Stipe got better. Look at the rematch and rubber match with Daniel Cormier. Stipe was getting better, and Ngannou beat that guy. He beat the guy that almost dismantled DC in the third fight. And I'm going to be honest here. DC's win over Frank Mir, Josh Barnett, and Bigfoot do not compare to Francis Zagano's win even over Cain Velasquez, Curtis Blades, and Alistair Overeem. They don't compare to those wins. Those guys that Ngannou just beat there are greater fighters than the guys that Daniel Cormier beat right there. Derek Lewis is a good win for DC. That's the one that really stacks up with Francis Ngannou's wins. But it's only Stipe and Derek Lewis that really compare to most of Ngannou's wins. So that's why I have to put Ngannou over Daniel Cormier. His quality of wins are just generally better. But then let's look at Junior Santos. How does he stack up against Daniel Cormier? Well, number one, he was also a champion. He defended his belt. And he did have a lot of losses, but most of the losses were after he lost his prime. When you lose fights after losing your prime, the impact of those losses 
decrease, right? When you look at legacy, it's better to lose when you're over the hill than when you're in your prime, right? But JDS did lose a couple times in his prime. Game Velasquez fights, right? He lost twice in his prime. Some people can even count the Alistair Overeem fight. So who did JDS beat? Fabrizio Verdum in his debut, Shane Carwin, prime Cain Velasquez, Frank Mir, Mark Hunt, Stipe Miocic, Ben Rothwell, who's coming off a huge streak, and Derek Lewis. He has eight notable wins. DC obviously beating Stipe Miocic is a greater win than any single JDS win, but the rest of Cormier's wins do not stack up to anything JDS has ever done. Yeah, Cormier beat Derek Lewis. So did JDS. In fact, JDS beat a better version of Derek Lewis than Daniel Cormier did. Daniel Cormier beat Frank Mir, Bigfoot, and Josh Barnett. Does that stack up to Cain Velasquez, a better version of Frank Mir, Shane Carwin, Fabrizio Verdum? Stipe Miocic? No, they don't even come close, man. That is why Daniel Cormier is number nine in the heavyweight GOAT list. So now let's look at light heavyweight. Number one, John Jones. Number two, Chuck Liddell. Number three, Quentin Jackson. Number four, Shogun Hua. Number five, Daniel Cormier. Number six, Randy Couture. Seven, Dan Henderson. Eight, Leota Machida. Nine, Tito Ortiz. And ten, Forrest Griffin. Why is DC number five? Most people say he's number two or number three. Just how the limited amount of wins, big wins he's had in the heavyweight division, he's had even less at light heavyweight. And that also may scratch your head a bit. Daniel Cormier did not fight in the light heavyweight division that much. Most of his career was at heavyweight. I'll tell you his entire career at light heavyweight. He beat Patrick Cummins, which is not a notable win at all. He beat a 43-year-old Dan Henderson, who was way over his prime at that point. He lost to John Jones, beat a prime Rumble Johnson, beat a prime Alexander Gustafson in a very, very close fight, beat an extremely old two-day notice underweight Anderson Silva, beat Rumble Johnson again, who was mentally not in the fight, who had one foot out the door, no contest with John Jones, beat a good Volkan Uzdemir, and that was literally his light heavyweight career. That was it. He had nine fights in light heavyweight. How many of those are notable? Only four. Some people will say only three. I'm going to count Rumble Johnson twice. Some people are not going to count the rematch. Alexander Gustafsson and maybe Volkan Uzdemir. Those are his only notable wins. There seems to be a lot of hype around Daniel Cormier with the fact that he was a quote-unquote rival with John Jones when he really wasn't. It was just promoted as such, but the fights were never that close. In fact, I would say Gustafsson was a better rival for John Jones than Cormier was. With four notable wins, he won the light heavyweight title and defended it twice. How does that stack up with who a lot of people had disagreements with, Shogun Hua and Quentin Jackson? Let's talk about quality of wins and body of work. Because Daniel Cormier has nothing on Shogun and definitely nothing on Rampage when it comes to the level of competition beaten. Respect of the era, of course. Shogun Hua, who was the light heavyweight champ, he beat Rampage Jackson, Little Nog twice, I'm not going to count the third fight, Alistair Overeem twice, Ricardo Arona, Kevin Randleman, Chuck Liddell, Lyoto Machida, some people count the first fight as well, Forrest Griffin, and Corey Anderson when Shogun was over the hill. That's 11 notable wins, compared to 4, arguably 3. Who had the better quality wins in comparison? Of course Shogun. Defeating Forrest Griffin? Leota Machida, Rampage Jackson are better than any win Cormier had in the light heavyweight division. Cormier's Volkan Uzdemir win is relative to Shogun's Overeem wins. Maybe because Overeem was not the same guy at light heavyweight. The Gustafson and Rumble Johnson win for Daniel Cormier is like somewhere relative to Ricardo Arona or Chuck Liddell maybe. Maybe a little bit better than the Chuck Liddell win. Maybe Little Nog around there. But the fact of the matter is, Shogun has way more wins than that, right? He has way more quality and way more quantity than Daniel Cormier succeeded in. The only thing going against Shogun Hua is the fact that he lost so many times. And he actually lost in his prime a few times. He lost in his prime when he fought Forrest Griffin. The Leo to Machida win, I mean, fine, but it was a clear robbery. And of course, the John Jones. He lost to Dan Henderson in a close fight. 
And ever since then, he was on a downslope in his career, right? That Dan Henderson fight did a number on Shogun. So you can kind of see how Shogun's above Daniel Cormier. And now let's talk about Rampage Jackson because this is where the gap gets wider. So Rampage, also a light heavyweight champ who also defended it, he beat Igor Fafchampchen, a prime Kevin Randleman, Marilla Bustamante, prime Chuck Liddell twice, Ricardo Arona, some people will count Ninja Hua, I'm not going to do that, Matt Linlin in his prime, Dan Henderson in his prime, Vanderlei Silva, Leota Machida in his prime, Matt Hamill in his prime, who I'll compare to the Volkan Uzdemir win, and King Mo before King Mo really fell off. That's 12 notable wins, and the quality is just doesn't even compare. Daniel Cormier's wins do not compare to what Quentin Jackson did. That is why Daniel Cormier is number 5 in the light heavyweight GOAT list. So again, if you guys want me to make a video of the whole list going through the entire thing, I can absolutely do that. I'm going to show you guys the images here just so if you guys want to pause the video and look at the list and stuff. From heavyweight to flyweight, and we only look at the women's bantamweight division because the flyweight and strawweight division are pretty obvious. I mean, they didn't have that long of a history. Everybody knows who the greatest of those divisions are. And of course, I have the pound for pound for women and for men. So let's go right to the questions from here. We're going to start with the most liked comment. They are not in order. This is very weird. Sometimes this happens, but we're going to start with random 13. How do you think the following fight would have went in 2016? Number one, McGregor versus Tony. Number two, Habib versus Tony. The McGregor-Tony fight is always going to be back and forth because McGregor could hurt him early. For the first one, I have to go with Tony Ferguson. I think he gets battered for the first two rounds, but then smothers and finishes Connor in probably the fourth round. Tony Ferguson is going to eat a lot of left hands in the first two rounds. But McGregor tires out, and like we saw Tony Ferguson against Justin Gaethje, he can eat that kind of punishment for five rounds. If he's only going to eat it for two rounds, he's going to come back and finish Conor McGregor, 100%. Conor's not going to be able to swim with him. Number two, I think Habib beats Tony Ferguson. I always thought this. His ground game got exposed against Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. He got taken down very, very easily. I understand he's not the same Tony Ferguson, but he got taken down in the past against Kevin Lee. All of that just pretty much goes to tell me that Habib would dominate him on top. He possibly can finish Tony. But Tony's still going to be somewhat hard to finish for Habib, I think. He scrambles a lot. He's hard to hit clean. He's always diving for legs and he does not gas out. And then we go to La Cabra. Who is going to be the next fighter to hear Buffer say and new in each weight class? Keep up the good work on the podcast. Thank you so much, man. So heavyweight division is probably going to be Surreal Gone. Light heavyweight division is probably going to be Magomed Ankalaev. Middleweight division, I'm going to say Robert Whitaker. But there's a possibility Vittori could be the next one. If he shows that his wrestling in BJJ is too much for Adesanya, we might have a new champ on our hands next month. The welterweight division, ah, uh, this one's tough. I'm going to stick with the interesting one. I'm going to say Vicente Luque. The lightweight division, I'm going to say Justin Gaethje. The featherweight division, oh, this one's tough, man. I could see Brian Ortega for sure, but I could also see Max Holloway. I'm going to go with Ortega just for the fun of it. Bantamweight division, Patreon, 100%. That's a given. Flyweight division, you know what? I'm going to go with Brandon Moreno, and I don't think he's going to beat Figueredo. I think Figueredo is going to go up a division and eventually vacate the 125 after feeling so good fighting at 135. I think Moreno is going to win the vacant belt. 135, I'm going to say Jermaine Duranamy after Nunes retires. 125, do I have to pick someone? I don't see anybody being Shevchenko. I guess Tatiana Suarez has the best chance. And then the strawweight division, the best chance is going to be Carla Esparza because she definitely has a good shot at beating Rose Namajunas. And then we go to Lil Uzi Hurts. How badly do you think the Gaethje fight altered Tony Ferguson? He used to wade forward with utter disregard for getting hit. He used to be so offensively minded and almost negligent when it came to his defense. But in his last two fights, it almost looks like he'd rather go to the ground because at least then he wouldn't have his face being melted off with strikes. 
Love your work, Weasel. Keep up the content. Thank you so much, man. It altered him beyond belief. I mean, almost to the level what TJ Dillashaw did to Hayden Burrell. This is actually worse, in my opinion, than what Kane did to JDS. Because at least JDS had a couple years after where he was very competitive with some of the best fighters. Tony Ferguson is not competitive at all. At least JDS was not afraid of getting hit. At least he wasn't deterred to move forward and attack. He still does it today. Justin Gaethje beat up Tony Ferguson so bad that Tony is now almost afraid to move forward and throw punches. It's definitely one of the worst. I would say the worst ones are Johnny Hendricks after the Robbie Lawler fights. Maybe Carlos Condit after the Robbie Lawler fight as well. And then, of course, the worst one of all, Hennon Burrell after the TJ Dillashaw fights. And then we go to Jack Heron. Best performance of the year so far. And Ganus, Holloway's, Poirier's, either of Usman's, Rose's, or Valentina's. And would Francis Ngannou be able to take a flush punch from Francis Ngannou? So easily the best performance of the year goes to Max Holloway. Not only the best performance of the year, it's one of the best performances in UFC history. You do not normally witness what Max Holloway did to Kelvin Cater. What Francis did to Stipe we've seen before. Not against Stipe, but we've seen those kind of performances every now and again, right? What Dustin Poirier did to Conor McGregor, it was a good performance, but it wasn't up there in my opinion. He had a good game plan and executed it, but he was getting stunned and he was getting hurt. He was losing moments of the fight. Usman had a good performance, but again, we've seen those kind of things in the past. Rose's performance, it was a one-shot thing. It wasn't a continuous showcase of her skills. And Shevchenko's was good, but we've seen Shevchenko do that over and over again. It wasn't necessarily something that wowed us to that extent. Well, Holloway did the cater. Not only did he put on an advanced boxing display, but he did it against who people were regarding as the best boxer of the featherweight division, one of the best boxers in the entire UFC, and Holloway boxed his face off, man, from bell to bell, from the beginning of the fight all the way to the fifth round. And what he was showing are things that we never really see. Talking to the commentators as he's dodging punches and no look punching Kelvin Cater in the face, you never see that kind of stuff, man. Not only performance of the year, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And wouldn't Ganu take a punch from himself? I think he can. I mean, you see the size of the guy's head? He'd probably take a couple of them. Then we go to Kashal Khatri. People have started saying that Tony was never high level. What do you think about that? How can someone be undefeated for eight years and not be high level? And it's not like he fought chumps. Love from India, Weasel Ramandi. Also, I cannot get over Tony's face when the results were being announced. Yeah, man. He knew what happened. Like he, It looked like he was very disappointed in himself, and he just came in terms of reality. Hopefully, he did, at least. I mean, now his tweets are making it seem like he's going to come back again. But it just seems like he's trying to motivate himself more than anything. So, people saying that Tony was never high level. They're probably only looking at the last three fights, and then what they're saying is, the guys he beat were over the hill, and the guys he beat were never really that good. Anthony Pettis, Don Cerrone are over the hill, and they were exposed fight after fight when this is just simply not true. Tony Ferguson not only was undefeated for eight years and ranked for, I think, seven of those years, fighting contender after contender, and having slip-ups is something that normally happens to fighters, but he found a way not to lose because of those slip-ups. He's always found a way to win. When you fight so much for so many years and be undefeated for so many years, you're going to have moments where you're probably going to lose here and there because of a mistake. Tony Ferguson did not fall under that. Number two, the guys he beat were extremely high level. Josh Thompson was high level. Gleason Tebow was high level. In fact, the same guy that most people think beat Habib. Rafa dos Anjos was one of the best fighters in the world, let alone in his division. Edson Barboza, top contender. Heck, give him the Eve Edwards win. I forgot about that win before he lost to Michael Johnson. Now I can see some of the criticisms. The Kevin Lee win. Kevin Lee had a uh, staph infection. Yes, that's true. But Kevin Lee was also on a streak of his own. Defeated some really good fighters in his five-fight win streak. Did very well against Tony Ferguson, but ultimately succumbed after getting hurt a couple times. Kevin Lee actually said it wasn't necessarily him getting tired as much. It was actually the elbows off of Tony Ferguson's back 
that caused a lot of issues for him. Tony's guard was a lot more solid than Kevin Lee anticipated. Then you have the Anthony Pettis win. Yes, people are going to say Anthony Pettis lost multiple times, right? Getting shut down by Javier Dos Anjos, losing to Eddie Alvarez, lost a striking match to Edson Barboza, lost to Dustin Poirier, and then he loses to Tony Ferguson. I mean, he had a couple wins in there, of course, right? He beat Charles Oliveira, he beat Jim Miller, he beat Michael Chiesa. But even though Anthony Pettis was losing fights, he had a style that people were taking advantage of. People were wrestling Anthony Pettis into a loss and pressuring him with that wrestling, threatening him with takedowns, and that's how Pettis was losing fights for the most part. Tony Ferguson did not take the easy route. He fought Anthony Pettis at his own strengths. Creative, long striking, jumping off the cage, all that sort of stuff. And that's why you saw Anthony Pettis have success because you saw Pettis fighting at his best against a guy, no worries at all of being taken to the ground. And after that fight, again, he fought a guy who did not threaten him with takedowns Steven Thompson, and he knocks that guy out. One of the greatest welterweights of all time. The losses of Anthony Pettis' career can create an illusion of how good he actually was. If you fought him the way Tony Ferguson fought him, you're fighting a very high-level Anthony Pettis who's very dangerous. That's why Tony Ferguson's win over Pettis is extremely credible. This is the same reason why people are still awing about Fedor's win over Noguera. Not only did he beat one of the greatest heavyweights of all time, the greatest heavyweight in that era, but he beat him by jumping into his guard on the ground. He beat Mirko Krokop, fighting him on the feet in an all-time classic. Yes, he tried takedowns here and there, but he did very well on the feet with Mirko Krokop. This is why Tony Ferguson's win over Anthony Pettis is extremely credible because normally a lot of guys are not going to be able to beat Anthony Pettis the way Tony Ferguson fought him. Like for an example, Edson Barboza fights Crone Gracie. Would a win over Crone Gracie, like beating him on the feet, shutting down the takedowns, all that stuff, would that be like a notable win for Edson Barboza at the state of his career, right? He's a top contender, Crone Gracie's still young, all that stuff. No, it wouldn't be counted as a notable win. Crone Gracie is not a great striker. But now let's say Edson Barboza takes down Crone Gracie and beats him on the ground. He escapes submission, starts landing ground and pound, attempts some submissions himself, and wins through a decision like that. Is that a notable win now? Absolutely it is. That's why Tony Ferguson's win over Anthony Pettis is also notable. And then we talk about the Don Cerrone win. Don Cerrone was coming off a three-win streak over Ally Quinta in his last one, who was a top contender at the time. He beat Alexander Hernandez, who people thought would beat Cerrone. And his last lightweight loss was the Rafa Dos Anjos, who was the champion at the time. That was absolutely a great win for Tony Ferguson. He beat one of the best versions of Don Cerrone. It's just you know what happens, though. When you lose to Tony Ferguson in that fashion, you start to fall off a bit. The damage you take from Tony Ferguson generally doesn't sit in that well. Kevin Lee was never the same. Donald Cerrone was not the same. Anthony Pettis was, but it took him a little bit more time for him to fall off. So yeah, Tony Ferguson, definitely very high level. And then we go to Zach Oker. If you can redesign the MMA judging system from ground up, how would your ideal system look like? Number one, open scoring. The fighters should know what the scorecards are. There's people who say that it could help fights where the loser knows that he has to do something in order to win. And then some people say, but the winner of the fight is going to coast because they know they are winning. But here's the thing, man. When the loser knows they're losing, they're going to try to fight. They're going to try to do something to get a finish, right? How many fights have we seen where both fighters think they're winning and it becomes a boring fight? That's happened too often. With open scores, that's never going to happen because fighters know where they stand. I can see if there's a wrestler in there who's been grinding for points that he's going to try to do it in the third round, let's say, and he knows he's up two rounds and it's just going to go again. But here's the kind of argument to that boring style that the wrestler is just going to keep doing it. Regardless, the wrestler is going to keep doing it. If the wrestler's up two rounds and he knows it, like he's dominating, he's been on top for the majority of the fight, open scoring or not, he's going to still do it. He's still going to go in the last round and do it again. But at least the guy who's losing knows for a fact he's losing. 
He's not going to think, oh, I'm, I'm creating a little bit more damage. I'm striking off my back. So am I actually winning here? That's never going to be a thought of the losing fighter. So open scoring is number one. Number two, take away the round by round scoring. I don't like that. I can see where it helps. But honestly, man, when you judge the fight as a whole, it becomes a lot easier because no rounds are the same. No 10-9 rounds are the same. For an example, Derek Lewis winning, I think, the second round or whatever against Francis Ngannou being a 10-9 round. Is that a same 10-9 score compared to Dominic Reyes' first round against John Jones? Those are not the same 10-9 rounds. So you could do two things here. Eliminate round-by-round scoring, or we start using more numbers. 10-8, 10-7, 10-6, we're going all the way down. The fact that we only go as far down as 10-7 means that there's going to be a lot of rounds being scored the same, even though they're not nearly the same kind of rounds. But one thing I don't like about using all the numbers of the 10-point must system is you're going to have some weird scorecards where... One judge thinks it's a 10-7, where another judge thinks it's actually a 10-5. And each number matters so much. That's that's why I'm going to say eliminate round-by-round scoring. Score the fight, 10-point must system as a whole. And in order to do that, you're going to need more rules about what kind of strikes matter, how much damage is going to give like a specific amount of points, all that stuff. Then again, there's one thing that scares me about that kind of thing is... The judges might forget like what happened in the first round when it's five rounds, you know. In that case, there is something good about the round by round scoring is that after every round, they know what they're looking at. They don't forget anything and they write it down and pass it off. So now they don't have to worry about what happened last round. They just worry about what happens in the next round. So eliminate round by round scoring or do the whole 10 point must system thing. Use every single number. With all that, 10 10 rounds. We need these. I understand the way the rules are written today. It's virtually impossible to have a 10 10 round. Because even if I land one more strike than you, I'm winning the round. But man, if it's that close, let's just give it a 10-10 round. If we're off by like one shot and nothing's happening, it should be a draw. Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou should have been a draw. Every round should have been 10-10. Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky, third round, should have been a 10-10. Ultimately making the fight a draw. Another thing I like is kind of similar to boxing. If I drop you, it's automatic 10-8, right? Because I'm winning the round and then the knockdown takes another point off of the opponent, right? So I knock you down, it's 10-8. I knock it down again, it's 10-7. But let's say you get me in a rear naked choke and I'm trying to survive. That's an automatic 10-8. And the reason why getting close submissions like that should warrant a 10-8 round is because now it's going to encourage fighters to be more active on the ground. Because let's say this, the wrestler is laying praying. He's grinding it out, you know, scoring on points like that. It's going to be a 10-9 round. But then the guy on the bottom happens to get a triangle choke and they're really quick. And now the wrestler is surviving. He's trying to get out of there. 10-8 round for the guy on the bottom. Or 10-9. Maybe not score as much as a knockdown, but it should automatically give the guy who got that submission a 10-9 or 10-8 round automatically until the guy on top does something in return to nearly get the other guy finished as well. So off the top of my head, those are some things I would change about the judging system. And then we go to Brian Frosting. Hey, Weasel, what are your complete martial art credentials? How would you rate your striking BJJ in wrestling? All right, so first, I'm not some super high-level guy or something. I was a blue belt in Taekwondo, did it kind of briefly, had like six to seven years training in boxing, a few years training in just MMA. We did a bunch of stuff, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, all that stuff. How would I rate my striking BJJ and wrestling? So obviously my striking is going to be better than my grappling and wrestling. Where my strengths lie in striking are my countering ability, I'm very long, my speed is one of my greatest assets, both throwing strikes and moving. I've been told that my footwork, slipping ability, and counterpunching are actually pretty high level, a lot better than other people with my experience. But I do understand my weaknesses as well. So one of the biggest ones is that I'm not that great in the pocket. Now I'm very comfortable when people pressure me. I actually like when I'm moving backwards. But it's generally in the center. 
where someone's able to get in on me, where someone's able to get in on me, like go to the body and come up over the top with short hooks, that's generally where I have the biggest trouble. And I've been working on a lot, man. But because of my Taekwondo background, my reach and the way I box, a lot of it is long range specific. With my BJJ, I'm extremely explosive, right? I like to go for things. I'm always looking to stand up if I'm on the bottom, right? But I'm always looking for submissions. This has maybe once or twice, you know, got me in trouble on the ground. But man, I just love that kind of style. I just love going for submissions like that. I do need more patience and control for sure. But my Kimura and my guillotine, I think are pretty nasty, man. I'm not going to lie. But I've also been submitted a lot by arm triangles because of the position issue. And then wrestling. Wrestling is my weakest point out of all martial arts. I have good takedown defense, but I tend to use a lot more athleticism to get out of things than actual skill. I didn't, I've barely wrestled my entire life. Only, only when I got into MMA, I started to learn to wrestle a little more. And honestly, I just don't like it. It's not that fun for me. I honestly know it's the most important martial art to learn, but man, I don't want to have takedowns. For me, it feels very uncomfortable and unnatural to go for takedowns. I use wrestling just so I don't get taken to the ground. That's pretty much it. I can already see people are devising a game plan of how to beat the weasel in a fight if it comes down to it one day. Smother him, shoot him for takedowns, rise up, get in, dirty box him. But I've been working on this stuff. Those areas are getting better, man. And then we'll go to Travis Scott. Is Izzy a nightmare matchup for Usman or vice versa? Also, when is the nightmare matchup for this year? Yeah, I could see Izzy being a nightmare matchup for Usman, for sure. I mean, for one, Usman is not that big. I think he's going to have a hard time taking down Izzy. Just because one, Izzy does have a good takedown defense. And number two, Usman is probably going to be relatively somewhere around the same strength as Izzy. Whereas when we saw Jan Blachowicz take down Izzy, it's by a much bigger guy who is much stronger, right? But against guys who are Izzy's size... They've all had a hard time taking him down. So because of that, Izzy has the longer reach. He's much better as a striker. Usman is way too one-dimensional with his punches to tag someone like Izzy. I think Izzy has a field day with Usman, to be honest. And the Nightmare matchups. I will say they will be up before the next pay-per-view, for sure. And then another question by Lil Uzi Hurts. How'd you wind up calling the channel The Weasel? Is there like some cool superhero backstory? Much love, bro. Love the content. Thank you so much, man. And yes, I did cover this, but it was like a while ago. I think a year ago. But there's a lot of people that don't know why I named this channel The Weasel. Okay, yes, there is a reason why I named this channel The Weasel. It's actually a name I've been given by certain fighters in gyms and MMA community. There have been people who have probably seen me around for a while here. As you can see in my YouTube channel, I started the channel in 2011. I got this name before I started the YouTube channel. Which means, I may not sound it, but I am a bit older. And what I used to do back in the day was, I used to help certain fighters break down fights frame by frame, and I used to send the videos to them. And I used to do this for various gyms, for various different fighters. You probably heard GSP talk about this on Joe Rogan's podcast. He talked about the whole thing about his BJ Penn fights, and that he knew somebody who would help him study fighters frame by frame. Well, I used to do this for various different fighters, and because some of them found out that I would help their opponents and help them, behind the scenes, they used to call me the weasel. So I kind of ran with this on some of the underground forums of MMA back in the day and Sherdog, other websites and stuff. And I used to just pick up that name and I switched the lettering because other people had the correct spelling. I kind of made it my own thing. So yeah, that's why my channel's name is the weasel. And it answers a lot of people's questions as to why I'm so good at breaking down fights and how I'm able to come up with a breakdown so quickly. Well, it's because I've had a lot of practice doing it and I've been doing it actually for a very long time. I'm just kidding, guys. I never did any of that. 
I'm way too young to be doing that back in the day when GSP fought BJ Penn. They literally fought each other in 2006. Man, I wasn't even a teenager by then. It's a much cooler story than the real thing is. The real story is not exciting. I was a very young lad, had other social media, wanted to create an account. As a kid, saw a funny picture on Google of a weasel, and you could pretty much piece it all together from there. I did create the channel in 2011 just because I wanted a channel, and one day in 2017, as I got a little bit older, I made a video for fun. Just wanted to put it on YouTube, and I already had that channel up. So I put it on there, and before I knew it, that video gathered a lot of attention, and people start recognizing me as the weasel. The name carried itself, and honestly, with the way it's spelled and the way it looks and everything, it looks like a brand, and I think it's pretty iconic. Oh, for those wondering where I got this whole GSP thing was, literally someone just sent me the video of GSP saying that he knew some guy who just sent him breakdowns frame by frame, and the guy on Twitter asked me if it was me. <laughs> I'm like, there's no way it would be me. I mean, it's not like something I haven't done before, but I definitely didn't do it for GSP in 2006. And then we go to Christopher Sawney, Dustin or McGregor versus Oliveira. How do you think each of them will do and who will be the harder fight? The harder fight is going to be Poirier for the fact that McGregor is probably not going to stop Oliveira's takedown. And even if he does, he's going to rise in the clinch. Oliveira is still very, very dangerous there. And what if Oliveira pulls guard? What's Connor going to do? He's going to stand up and get away. Oliveira gets around his leg, gets McGregor to the ground. Now Oliveira's on top. If Oliveira gets a hold of McGregor at any point, on the bottom, in the clinch, on top, McGregor is such at a disadvantage, he might just straight up lose because of that. On the feet, Oliveira doesn't move his head. McGregor has a very sharp left hand. You could kind of see what could happen there. But I think Oliveira is not going to play that game too much. He's very smart, right? Look what he did to Tony Ferguson. He went straight to the takedown. But then look what he did to Michael Chandler. For the most part, struck with the guy. Because he knew it'd be hard to take Chandler to the ground. So the probability of Oliveira shooting in, pulling guard, doing something in that manner is like 70 to 80%. But here's the thing about Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier is a higher level BJJ artist than McGregor is, right? Now, he's not as dangerous on the feet as McGregor is facing Oliveira because he's not as sharp as a puncher. He doesn't hit as hard punch for punch. He's not a sniper. He's more of a combination puncher. And that's going to be hard to catch Oliveira who fights at such a long distance, right? Dustin's going to have to get in on him. And if Dustin comes in with that with that shift overhand, Oliver might get under him, take him to the ground, and Dustin's going to have his hands full on the ground. So ultimately, I do see Oliver beating both of them. It's mainly because of the wrestling of BJJ. You need to have stellar takedown defense and lethal hands to beat someone like Oliveira. Who is that guy? There's a man named Justin Gaethje, who I believe is probably Oliveira's hardest matchup in this division. And then we go to Eric Brown. Has Oliveira's hair been giving him special powers this whole time? And are we just slow to realize the truth? Which is that Michael Chandler will only win a UFC title if he also dyes his hair blonde. Thanks for everything, Weasel. I don't know, man. That might be it. Because it's not just him. There's another guy who's been dyeing his hair blonde, and he's been undefeated since. Derek Brunson. These guys have been going Super Saiyan, and we have yet to mention it. They've literally transformed in front of our eyes, and everybody's clueless as to why these guys are doing so well now. They have ascended, and my advice to everybody is, hey, start dyeing your hair blonde. If not, start dyeing it white if you want to even go beyond that. And then we're going to Bray Wyatt. How would these fights go? Number one, Habib versus Gilbert Burns at 170. Oh, that's a tough fight, man. I gotta go with Gilbert Burns. Habib could not handle him on the feet. And does Habib really want to take him to the ground? Habib's great on the ground. But honestly, if he would dominate someone like Gilbert Burns while on top, I don't think there's anybody that could beat Habib at that point. I don't think there's a name in this world around his weight that could beat him. I think Gilbert's a little too dangerous off his back. And he's way too lethal on the feet. He's also a hard guy to take to the ground when he wants to defend takedowns. Number two, Oliveira versus Ortega and 155. Gotta go with Oliveira. Better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist. More technical striker. Longer knockout power. Better takedowns himself. Gotta go with Oliveira on that one. 
Then we go to John Rozek. How long will Charles Oliveira's reign at lightweight be? And who is the possible worst matchup for him right now? Keep up the good work on the vids. Thank you so much, man. I think he defends his belt twice before he loses. And I think the guy he loses to potentially is going to be Justin Gaethje. Gaethje has incredible takedown defense. He has extremely good footwork. He's a lot more measured in his punches. He has one punch knockout ability. Charles Oliveira does not move his head. So what is Oliveira really going to do to get anything off on Justin Gaethje? Gaethje also has a better chin than Chandler. Much better chin. He's much more reserved. And let's be honest, he's much more technical than Chandler on the feet. He's not going to get leg kicked, which is a big problem for Chandler. Right, Gaethje's very good at checking kicks. He's good at going to the body as well. He has great hooks as he's backing you up. Very good counter punches as Oliveira might move forward. I think it's a good fight, but I ultimately do think it's the hardest fight for Oliveira. Then with Anderson Jones, how do you see Gustafsson doing in a rematch against Jan Blachowicz and Glover Teixeira? I think he loses to both of them. He's not the same anymore. Gustafsson's takedown defense has greatly diminished. His willingness to strike on the feet has also disintegrated. His speed in his hands have gone out the window a bit, while Blachowicz is a lot more powerful, a lot more confident, a lot more defensively responsible. Gustafsson doesn't really do much to Blachowicz, to be honest. I think Blachowicz beats him by a decision. Glover Teixeira, I think, takes down Gustafsson and beats him by a submission. Now, if we're talking about prime Gustafsson, he has the potential to beat both these guys, 100%. And then we're going to J4964. Fantasy matchups. Habib versus Burns, gotta go with Burns. Wonderboy versus Whitaker, gotta go with Whitaker. Romero versus Cormier, gotta go with Cormier. A dangerous fight though. Piotr Jan versus Volkanovski, gotta go with Volkanovski. Sahudo versus Holloway, Holloway for sure. Zabit versus Oliveira, gotta go with Oliveira. Tony versus Masvidal, right now, Masvidal tears him apart. Edwards versus Whitaker, Whitaker 100%. Then with a Michael Cianci. How do you think Usman would do at middleweight, specifically against Izzy, Whitaker, Kelvin, and Vittori? Keep up the great work, man. Thank you so much. So I kind of talked about it already. He's going to be pretty small for the division. He is stocky. He's built. He's muscle-bound all that stuff, but he's 5'11", and he doesn't weigh that much. I think he said he walks around at 190. Adesanya weighs at 200. Whitaker weighs like 215, 220. Kelvin weighs around the same. And Vittori probably weighs around the same as well. He's going to give up a lot of weight to these guys. He's going to be a lot weaker than them. And ultimately with that, they're not going to be that intimidated by his wrestling. And especially not intimidated by his striking. Vittori, Whitaker, and Izzy shut down his wrestling and outstrike him. Vittori, though, is going to make it more of a brawl, which is going to give Usman a little bit more of a chance. But I think Vittori is a little bit too big, a little bit too powerful, too pressuring. I think he's going to win on the scorecards there. Kelvin may lose. His takedown defense has never been that great. And he is a smaller guy. Usman does not want to strike with him. But Usman can potentially wrestle his way to a decision. Then with a Will Rose. Would you ever fight professionally? Yeah, I would like to. It's always been something I wanted to do. Who is your favorite fighter currently? My favorite fighter right now is probably Yuri Prohaska. I just love the guy. Like, he's just a character, and, and he's so entertaining to watch. He's always putting on a performance. And do you think Piotr Jan would beat Cejudo? I honestly think he can, yeah. He's a better boxer. The high kick is going to be super dangerous for Cejudo. Jan is a hard guy to take to the ground, and he's very good at scrambling. Can he scramble Cejudo? No, he can't. But... I don't think Cejudo keeps him on the ground that long. Piotrán also has 5-round cardio. Cejudo is very easy to leg kick. That can mix up high kicks. Piotrán really good at using that first round to gauge the opponent, download the data, find the openings, and he starts executing like an assassin. So yeah, I actually do see Piotrán having a very good chance of being Cejudo. Then we'll go to Daniel Silva. Why do you think that everybody forgot about Adesanya's Gaino 
during the Colsta fight. How many top fighters do you believe are on PEDs? Yeah, it is pretty weird how everybody just stopped talking about that. But I think once fight week comes up, there's going to be some people mentioning it. Of course, the commentators and the broadcast are not going to mention it. And I still don't know what to think about the whole gyno situation. A lot of people that I watch who know a lot more about PEDs, who are into the whole fitness industry, they know about bodybuilding and all that stuff. So they're very familiar with all different forms of PEDs. All of these guys say that Adesanya is on something, or it's more probable that he's on something. He's developed gyno in six months. All of a sudden, he didn't get surgery to get rid of it or anything like that. There's most likely not a pec tear. Even literal bodybuilders are saying there's no way Adesanya is natural. For me, I don't know what to really think. It's hard to say these days. I mean, you can't judge by just how they look, right? Anderson Silva, of all people, tested positive. John Jones, even though he's kind of a big guy, he doesn't look like someone who takes steroids. And he's like the poster boy of PEDs. Dan Henderson was on TRT. So how many top fighters do I believe are on PEDs? That's a hard question to answer, man, because I have no idea. If you told me 10%, I could find that reasonable. If you say 50%, I can still find that reasonable. It all comes down to, did the drug testing weed out a bunch of the juicers? It looked like it did. I mean, you look at guys like Tiago Alves and Eric Silva's bodies completely changed once USADA came into play. Johnny Hendricks turned into a pillow puncher, and his body really changed as well. It definitely weeded out a bunch of the guys who were using PEDs. But I don't know if now guys like Adesanya, potentially, just in theory, maybe guys like Kamaru Usman, maybe these guys know a way around the system and the testing and are getting away with it. We have no idea. Then we'll go to Tornado HQ. Peak welterweight Tony Ferguson versus peak Usman. Usman for sure. I think he takes down Tony and controls him. Tony can submit him. It's a possibility because Usman hasn't shown great Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And honestly, from his camp, both camps he trained at, they are not known for their BJJ at all. So if Tony's going to win, it's going to be by a submission. But I say Usman wins like 60 to 40. Also, how well will 250-pound Stipe do against Francis Ngannou? I honestly don't think... It matters that much. Stipe is going to be slower in this fight, which is going to hurt him, right? He's going to power punch with Francis Ngannou now. That's not a good idea. With that, his head movement and his footwork are going to be a lot slower. His wrestling potentially could be stronger, but he's never going to be at the level to overpower Francis Ngannou. That's never going to happen. So by giving Francis more of a speed advantage and the fact that he's getting better with his wrestling, and the fact he's still never going to be as strong as Francis Ngannou, no matter how much weight he gains, I honestly think that Stipe gaining weight can potentially hurt him more. Remember, Stipe Miocic needs to move away and avoid Francis Ngannou for the first round. He cannot engage him. Is a Stipe Miocic gaining 20 more pounds going to allow him to get away from Francis easier? No, he's going to be a bigger target for Francis. He's going to be an easier, slower target for Francis. And then Max Holloway said in an interview that he put up some muscle. His power was noticeable more than ever before. Do you feel the same? Also, keep up the good work, bro. Thank you so much, man. It was noticeable in the second Volkanovski fight. Not necessarily too much against Kelvin Cater. That could be due to the fact that Kelvin Cater takes everybody's punches. I mean, that guy has a chin of granite. So no matter who's punching him, it always looks like it's not knocking him out or anything. But against Volkanovski, you definitely saw the difference. From the first fight to the second, Holloway definitely hits harder. But I don't think he'll ever be that kind of power puncher to knock out people with one punch and all that stuff. He's going to need the right kind of shot, like to the temple or something, as they come in and they don't see it, for him to knock out somebody with one blow. 
And what if he's also doing it to prepare himself to go up to 155? Remember, he said he's not done at 155. He's going to go back up. We might actually see Holloway permanently fight at 155. We're going to go to Parzival. Number one, who wins between Dustin Poirier and Oliveira? And has your opinion changed after the Chandler fight? I think Oliveira beats Dustin, but it is very competitive. Number two, in how many fights do you think Kamar Usman will retire? As he was already contemplating before the Jorge rematch. It's hard to say, man, because he beat most of the guys in the division. And he is pretty young at the same time. I always say two to three title defenses and he's going to retire. Number three, do you think Barboza can make a title run at featherweight? Given how he matches up against the top guys, keep up the great work. Yeah, Barboza is a contender. He's a threat at 145 to almost everybody. It's crazy to say after we've seen him at 155 and we see how big the guy looks that he was actually a 145er this whole time. That's so crazy, man. But yeah, I think he gives Volkanovski a lot of problems. I think he gives Ortega a lot of problems. I think he gives Max Holloway early problems. I think he gives Rodriguez a lot of problems. Do not count out Barboza's chances at becoming the champion of the featherweight division. And then we go to CT. How would a prime form of these former top fighters do in the respective divisions currently? So Ian McCall at 125. I think he could be a top seven fighter. I think he'll roam around the number five spot. Miguel Torres probably doesn't do that well. I see him potentially being on the lower end of the top 15. Chad Mendez at 145, potentially top 7 as well. I think he loses to the top 3, probably top 4 guys for sure. Benson Henderson at 155. I honestly don't see anybody dominating Benson Henderson. I think he's competitive in every single fight in that division. So does he have a chance of becoming the champion? There's a slight chance, but I do see him eventually getting up to like a number one, maybe number two or number three contender. Johnny Hendricks at 170. There's a possibility Johnny Hendricks could be the champion, right? I think he could do very well against Kamaru Usman. He could do well against Gilbert Burns. I think he beats Colby Covington. Yeah, Johnny Hendricks at his best could potentially become the champion. TRT Vitor at 185 pounds. I think he doesn't become the champ. I think he loses to Adesanya. But I do see him fighting for the belt. 100%. He could beat guys like Paulo Costa. He could potentially beat Robert Whittaker. He could beat Jerry Kennanier. He could beat Darren Till. It's going to be hard to engage TRT Vitor because of his speed advantage and his countering ability. A guy like Adesanya can keep at a distance and pick at him. And that's what Vitor's going to have a hard time with. Gustafsson at 205. He has a potential to become the champion. I think he's a number one contender. Loses another split decision to someone like Jan Blachowicz. And then Shane Carwin in the heavyweight division. Top 5. 100%. Might fight for the belt, but I don't see him becoming the champion. And then the last question by Junior. Could someone who weighs 185 plus pounds and has MMA knowledge or has done some basic form of MMA be a boxer like a Mayweather or Canelo in a street fight? Because every time someone answers this, they use the boxing is a useless self-defense argument and that the boxer is too small in size. I'll say that Mayweather will lose 100% against a guy who's 180 plus pounds and has at least some basic knowledge of wrestling and leg kicks and even boxing to get away from some punches. Yeah, Mayweather probably doesn't stand a chance. Canelo, though, is a different story because he is a bigger guy. He has scary knockout power. But ultimately, man, here's the thing about just guys who know boxing and that's it. Even if they're the highest level boxers, they don't know what to do if someone goes at their legs. They have no idea what to do. You've seen it plenty of times. You've seen it in boxing as well. Look when uh, Deontay Wilder dropped down on Tyson Fury's legs like he was going to go for a takedown. Tyson Fury didn't even know what to do about that, right? Look what Marcos Maidana did to Mayweather when he essentially took him to the ground. Mayweather did not know what to do at all. Just completely lost balance. That's how helpless guys are who only do one martial art and they fight someone else who does another or is a jack of all trades. So yeah, I would have to say the guy's 108 plus pounds and has MMA knowledge. 
is going to beat even the highest caliber of boxers without much difficulty, to be honest. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to give it a like and make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. If you guys want more episodes, like I said in the beginning, you can become a patron or a member of the channel where I upload weekly, sometimes twice a week, extra podcast episodes where you guys can exclusively ask your questions and all that stuff. So again, thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys in the next episode.